Welcome to the 100th episode of Sightseeing Japan. Oh, I was going to say that. The podcast where we explore the land of culture. That is right. I'm Jason Neeling. Wait, and I'm you didn't Paul Bresson. That's Paul Bresson. I'm Jason Neeling. You were just both so eager to uh, go on yeah. this one. Yeah, this is a special episode. And even though you already said it, I'm, I'm still, I just, I just want to say it. Welcome to episode 100. Yeah, we made it to 100. Yeah, can you believe it? Over two years we've been doing this. Pretty crazy. Yeah. So as we said a few months ago in episode 95, uh, this is going to be our last episode for this foreseeable future. And since it's going to be the most recent, the newest episode on our feed for a while, I wanted to take a moment to address our newer listeners, maybe people for whom this is the first episode that they're hearing. So this is Sightseeing Japan, as I think we have said already. This is a travel podcast with really bad timing because we started right before the pandemic. I don't know. We got, we got like six months, four months, something some, like that. Something like that. Of, we of got, solid. We were just getting off the ground. We got a few good months, got a lot of good feedback from people that we helped with their trips and stuff. You just made it to Japan and back in time. Yeah. I feel so lucky that I was able to go right before... Yeah, it, you were literally like down. two or three months before everything got locked down. Yeah. And now nobody's been able to go to Japan ever since. So that's unfortunate. But all 100 of these episodes are going to continue to be available on all major podcasting platforms in the hopes that people will find some useful information in the future if they're planning to take a trip to Japan or if they're just interested in Japanese culture. The nice thing about doing a podcast about you know, an episode about a 1,200-year-old temple, like, it probably won't get dated too fast. Yeah. A lot of our information is going to be current for a long time, I think. Uh, so if you're planning a trip to Japan, especially your first trip to Japan, I would highly recommend you go back to the very beginning, to the first 10 or so episodes, because we covered a lot of the basics of traveling in Japan. We talked about how to plan a trip, we talked about what types of hotels are out there and what options might be best for you. We talked about how to get to and around the country. We talked about the most popular areas for tourists. Yeah, just to throw out an example, like you could travel without a lot of preparation and survive, but the difference between my first trip and my second trip, I didn't know you could rent wireless internet at the airport on my first trip. So my brother and I are literally reading maps out of a book, trying to figure out where the heck we are, getting around, or printing out directions at the hotel in the morning to try to get from one place to another. And we made it with a, a little bit of trouble here and there. But then on the trip with you, when we had the wireless internet, we were literally just pulling our phone and like, we want to go here. And we it maps us straight to it. Yeah. It's just... It's a huge difference, and just even knowing that something like that exists. Yeah, so I hope that you know we put out a lot of information that will help people. I know that I'm super excited for my next trip to Japan because... <laughs> Tell me about it. I've learned so much from doing this podcast that is just going to totally enhance my future trips. And, even all uh, these places we've been, we do research on them, and you're like, what? I didn't know that's why this thing was there that I saw and just thought, oh, that's a cool thing. And I didn't even know all the history behind it that I do now. Yeah. That's another point. Research the places you're going to go before you go so you know all that historical stuff so you can really 
get the impact and understand what you're seeing. Yeah, I almost want to revisit all the places in Japan that I've already been to just because I didn't have that context going into it the first time. Yeah, but now we've done all those region episodes and I want to go everywhere I haven't been to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so those first 10 episodes will hopefully be super useful to you if you're taking a trip to Japan. And then the rest of our episodes, we've covered all sorts of topics. And we tried to sort of keep a balance between episodes about different aspects of Japanese culture, episodes about specific types of Japanese foods, and episodes about specific places to visit, whether that's cities or regions or specific sites, specific attractions. So that's pretty much what our podcast is about. And uh, if you're just interested in learning a lot of fun stuff about Japan, you know, you could go back and start at the beginning. You could start here at the end and work your way back. You could just scroll through and pick whatever topic catches your eye, whatever looks interesting. So there you go. That's my uh, table of contents for our podcast. And we hope you enjoy. Well said. So today, we're talking about Kyoto. Saving the best for last, maybe. You could say that. This is one of those cities that you've probably heard of, even if you don't know anything really about Japan. Like, I think the average American is, has heard of, at the very least, two cities in Japan, Tokyo and Kyoto. Yeah. So why, why would this be? What is so important about Kyoto? Well, for one thing, it was the capital of Japan and its main cultural center for over a thousand years. Arguably is still the main cultural center, at least traditional culture. Yeah. So these days, Kyoto is still jam-packed with temples, shrines, historical sites, ancient culture. There's a ton to see there. And they just, they just have a ridiculous number of temples, for one thing. I mean, I, I yeah. saw over 1,600 temples in Kyoto. I believe it. It's still one of Japan's largest cities, too. It's about a million and a half population. Mm -hmm. I saw that some people call Kyoto the heart of Japan. I, I understand that. So what, what does that say about Tokyo? Is Tokyo the brain of Japan? Tokyo's the lungs of Japan. The lungs? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Then what's the brain? Is that Hokkaido because it's up at the top? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Okinawa is like the, the big left toe or something, right? Down no, at it, the bottom. <laughs> isn't the brain... I haven't been here, but didn't you tell me um, Fukuoka? Is like the IT startup center mm. of Japan. Yeah, you could you the could build say tech that. capital. You could make that analogy, I suppose. Fukuoka is the brain of Japan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as for the location of Kyoto, Kyoto is located in the Kansai region on Honshu, which is Japan's largest main island, and it's also a part of the Keihanshin metro area along with the cities of Osaka and Kobe. Yeah, so very close to Osaka. Fun fact about the name, Kyoto means capital city, because it used to be the capital. Mm -hmm. And the Kyo part of that word is actually the same Kyo in the word Tokyo, which means eastern capital, which makes sense because Tokyo became the capital of Japan in 1868. Nice fact. Thank you. That's one of the things we do here. We throw out fun facts, we like to call them. <laughs> All 
All right, so we like to start our episodes off with a section about history, because I think it's important to get some historical context for places that maybe you're interested in visiting that can really enrich the experience. So where do you want to start, Paul, in Kyoto's history? Well, the area of Kyoto has probably been inhabited for a long, long time, but there hasn't been much research on the history before about the 6th century, which is when some shrines started being established in the area. Mm -hmm. I saw that there's evidence that humans were living in modern-day Kyoto as far back as the Paleolithic period, around 35,000 years ago. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah, I didn't know... uh... People have been in Japan even that long. It's a long time ago. I mean, it's a nice place to live. Like, it makes sense that, like, the first people that got there would be like, yeah, this is a cool place. Yeah, I mean, the oldest cities in Japan are the places that are hospitable to humans. You know, you got you got the water there. You got some flat area to create a settlement and stuff. Yeah, I've played way too much Civilization. <laughs> I'm like, it's on a river. It's near the mountains, so it has good production. Like, yeah, I need to stop thinking like that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we don't know much about what was really going on that far back. Uh, Paul, you said around the 6th? Yeah, around the 6th century is the first, or as far back as like published research goes on it. Yeah. Um, 6th century was when the Shimogamo Shrine was built. That's one of the oldest Shinto shrines in the country. Yeah, that's that's a long time ago. And there are actually a few famous shrines that you can still visit today that were built in the 7th century. We'll talk about some of those later, but I just think that's so awesome. And maybe it's, you know, I'm biased because America is such a young country, but it just seems insane to be able to visit these places that have been significant for yeah, so long. Not just being American, but the Midwest, you know? What's the oldest thing in Minneapolis? Maybe 150 years old. Yeah. Not quite uh, 1,500 years old, you know? Not quite. I go to Boston. I'm like, wow, this stuff's 300 years old. It's like baby, like baby compared to Japan. Yeah. I want to go to some real old spots in in Europe and like drink in a bar that's been around for a thousand years or something, you know? That'd be so cool. Yeah. Imagine a thousand year old bar. How many people have like sat in that chair and shared a drink with their friends over the centuries and how many stories were told and lives were lived? Wow. It's crazy to think about. This is another thing we like to do on this podcast. We go on little tangents once in a while. History is really cool. Yeah, it is. So moving on, I guess, uh, what things really kick off in the 8th century, right? Oh, yeah. The Nara period. So the capital is in Nara. Nara is the first permanent capital in Japan. They used to move to a new city every time there was a new emperor. But Nara's been the capital for, I think, about 100 years or so. But the priest class, the clergy, is starting to really involve themselves in the affairs of the state and gaining some sway and influence. So Emperor Kanmu is just like, you know what? All the temples are here in Nara. I'm just going to move the government and the capital to another city. And then the clergy won't be down my back about everything. (laughs) So he chose Kyoto as the area and in 794 officially moved the capital there. Yep. Uh, Kyoto at that point was known as Heian-kyo. 
And uh, this relocation of the capital basically kicked off this other time period known as the Heian period. Uh, some people call this Kyoto's golden age because things were going pretty well for around 400 years and the capital stayed in Kyoto. This is considered the peak of the imperial court and a high point in Japanese culture. Like throughout this period, the arts, poetry, literature, all that kind of stuff flourished in Kyoto. Kyoto was kind of the cultural center at this point. Yeah, it was one of the first big blossomings of like a traditional Japanese culture. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the Heian period, though, there was essentially a civil war between the Taira and Minamoto clans, which we've talked about before. That eventually led to the establishment of the Kamakura Shogunate and the next time period, which is known as the Kamakura period. Yeah, so an interesting thing to note is that for over a thousand years, Kyoto was the official capital of Japan. But sometimes the government wasn't always based in Kyoto. It's where the emperor was. When you had these shogunates, they might be in Kamakura, they might be in Edo running the show, running the government. But the emperor always stayed in Kyoto, which was always the official capital. Right. Until it wasn't. But we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, so during the Kamakura shogunate, uh, a couple important temples in Kyoto were built. Keninji was a Zen Buddhist temple that was built around this time, as was Tofukuji, which we just did an episode about. Uh, episode 98 was all about that temple. And both of those temples are still around and are both still part of the Kyoto Gozan, which we also talked about in episode 98. Those are the five great Zen temples of Kyoto. Uh, so next came the Muromachi period after the fall of the Kamakura Shogunate. And this is when another important temple was built in Kyoto. Uh, the Golden Pavilion, also known as Kinkakuji, uh, was built by Ashikaga Yoshimitsu. He was the third shogun of the Ashikaga Shogunate. And uh, that's one of the most popular places to visit in Kyoto. We'll talk more about that later. Unfortunately, Kyoto suffered extensive damage during the Onin War in 1467 to 1477. And it took a long time to recover afterwards. But I read a, read a little bit about the Onin War, and it was kind of crazy. The government had collapsed, and power was divided between a bunch of military families. So battles between samurai factions spilled into the streets of Kyoto, and they were just running battles in the streets. They put up big walls around all their mansions. They dug huge trenches around them all just to, through streets, whatever they had to. The whole city became all these little fortresses kind of warring with each other. And a ton of stuff got burned down. A ton of stuff got destroyed. Uh, really unfortunate, but kind of interesting that the city itself became like the battlefield for these political elites to duke it out on. Totally. For 10 years. Yeah, that is crazy. And then that war was kind of what plunged Japan into what is now known as the Sengoku period, which we've talked about a bunch of times. This is the Warring States period which was a, a pretty long period of pretty much constant civil war that lasted all the way to the end of the 1500s. And then Oda Nobunaga showed up and started the process of unifying Japan once again. He was one of 
a few people that are known as like the great unifiers that finally brought peace back to Japan. Yeah. So it became the Edo period after Japan was unified and was at peace. And the government was stationed mostly in Edo, but Kyoto remained the capital. And mm-hmm. it flourished pretty well with the stability and the economy booming because there's peace finally. Yep. Just a note, uh, Edo is what is now known as Tokyo. Yes. So this is when things started to change. The shogunate was based in Edo, and Edo really started growing and prospering. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Edo period was a 250-year-long period of peace. And we've talked before about how this stability allowed for the development of a lot of what we now think of as traditional Japanese culture. You know, haiku, poetry, sushi, sumo wrestling, geisha, all that stuff became popular around this time period. Yep. This was also a super isolationist period for Japan. They were not doing a lot of business with other countries. That could be partly why a lot of Japanese culture seems so unique. Mm-hmm. They were really flourishing in their own little bubble, making all their own stuff. Yeah, totally. So in 1868, the Meiji period began. This is when the emperor was restored to power and the capital was moved from Kyoto to Edo, which, as I mentioned, is now known as Tokyo. So essentially, Kyoto was the capital between 794 and 1868, over a thousand years. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Uh, In the Meiji period, this is also when we saw the country open up to foreign trade. So there is a whole lot of Western influence coming into Japan at this point. And that had a pretty profound impact on a lot of things. Yeah. Culture, economy, all sorts of stuff. A lot of things changed really fast in the Meiji Restoration. Mm -hmm. But Kyoto is one of those places in Japan that still holds on to its history Uh, It's also one of the few Japanese cities that wasn't bombed during World War II. So that is why there are still a ton of temples and shrines and historical sites to visit there. So I read an interesting story about that. Hmm. That Kyoto was originally on the list for cities to get the nuclear bomb. Really? Yeah. And that the Secretary of War, Henry L. Stimson argued really hard to take it off. Apparently, he had spent his honeymoon in Kyoto. Wow. And just loved the city. And he just argued, like, it's too important culturally. We shouldn't do this. And they replaced it with Nagasaki on the list. Wow. So I'm really glad Kyoto exists, but I'm really sorry, Nagasaki. Yeah. That's interesting. I never heard that. Yeah, so maybe almost like the history and the temples and all that kind of saved themselves in a way by impressing that guy so much. Yeah. All right. So now let's get into some of the awesome stuff that you can see and do in Kyoto. And before we even start with that, though, there's just, there's so much. There's so, so much to see in Kyoto. We couldn't possibly cover everything in this one episode. Um, No, we mentioned all 1,600 temples and (laughs) uncountable number of shrines. Yeah. This is our uh, 300-hour episode covering (laughs) Kyoto. No. But, I mean, you could spend 
an entire week in Kyoto and just barely get through the list of like the most popular places in the city. So we're going to do our best to at least cover, you know, some of the most popular parts of the city. And we're definitely going to talk about the places that we personally have been to. So we should, we should be giving you a good list of ideas if you're going to Kyoto at the very least. Yeah. So when you start going to do research about a place you want to visit, like some of these cities will have like uh, five top things to do in this city. Like Kyoto's easily like, here's the 60 most popular things in Kyoto. And that's just scratching the surface. Yeah, totally. All right. So if you're going to Kyoto, let's, let's say you're starting at Kyoto Station. I think that's a reasonable place to start. I think near the station is a good place to stay too. When we went uh, on our trip together to Kyoto, we stayed at a hotel that was just a, a quick walk from Kyoto Station. I think that was a good place to be. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's right on the subway lines. Mm-hmm. And Kyoto Station is very likely where you're going to come into the city. Yep. And Kyoto Station has the bus hub where you can take buses to all the major attractions around the city. Yep. Just a good place to be based. Yes. So when you exit Kyoto Station and you look around, you might think, well, what? I thought this was supposed to be like a traditional old style city. Why am I surrounded by, you know, normal buildings? It just looks like a Japanese city. What is up with that? Well, I mean, Kyoto is, of course, a city, and a lot of it does just look like a modern city. Uh, a lot of those historical sites, I mean, there are a bunch of them that are kind of scattered throughout the city. You'll just be walking down a city block, and all of a sudden you see this temple. But also, if you really want to immerse yourself in the history and the traditional architecture and all these temples and shrines, you kind of want to get to the edges of the city because a lot of the older stuff is in these places where the city kind of bumps up against nature. Like Kyoto is pretty much surrounded by mountains that are covered in trees and nature. And that's where all these temples and shrines are for the most part. Yeah, a lot of this stuff, it was you know, founded by an emperor or a nobleman. And they're like, if it's a Zen temple, where are you going to build it? You build it uh, on the edge of town where you got some nature. Or if an emperor is building a retirement villa, they're going to build it a nice place, Mm -hmm. not in the middle of the city. So that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. Also, I, I wonder if this has something to do with it. I mean, back at the beginning of like Shinto, you know, the, the kami, the gods, we're supposed to reside in mountains and yeah. trees and The mountains nature. are sacred. So yeah. building at the base of the mountains is, I think, significant. Mm-hmm. So where should we visit first, Paul? Um, I think Fushimi Inari is pretty close. And man, that's one you don't want to miss. Definitely. This is one of the must-sees in Kyoto, I think. So you can take a train just down southeast from Kyoto Station down to Fushimi Inari Taisha. And then I feel like that's kind of a good place to maybe start off a day because then once you see that, there's kind of this long strip of important temples that goes north from Fushiminari. There's kind of a bunch of stuff that's pretty walkable that you can visit. Yeah, absolutely. Unless you want to do the night hike at Fushiminari, which we talked about in our whole episode we did on Fushiminari. Right. Because we hiked up there at night and it was fantastic. It really was. That's episode 43, if you want to go back to that. We talked about this place for a whole hour, so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it here, but... 43? 
43. I can't believe it was that long ago. Yeah. Wow. So if you're not familiar with Fushimi Inari, you've probably seen pictures of it if you've seen pictures of temples and shrines in Japan because it's just, it's insanely famous. This is the one that has all of these long rows of red Tori gates. If you don't know what a Tori gate is, look at our logo. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, all these Tori gates, they're bunch really close together, lining these paths that go up to the top of this mountain. They're so close, it's like walking through a tunnel almost. It's really mm-hmm. cool. It is really cool. You can get some really great pictures there. There's some huge ones, and then there's some ones just a little bit taller than you, and then there's all these little ones stashed all over at these mini shrines. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty great place. And then you get up to the top or near the top, and you get a great view of the city too. Definitely. So it's just... We literally talked for an hour about how great this place is. Yes. But we should, I think we should move on. Okay. So heading north from Fushimi Inari, about half a mile north, you're going to find Tofukuji, which is a Zen Buddhist temple. I mentioned this in the history section, actually. This is one of Kyoto's great five Zen temples. And this is another one that we did an entire episode about, as I mentioned. I already mentioned that, right? Yes, 98. Yes, 98. Uh, if you want to see some amazing Zen gardens with a modern twist, or maybe it's fall and you want to see some amazing fall colors, this is a great place to visit. Very yeah. memorable. To synthesize our hour, you just did it perfectly. <laughs> gardens and fall colors. Yeah. That is what it's known for. So if we head further north from Tofukuji, we're going to start getting into the Higashiyama Ward which has some really cool stuff. It's a really traditional-looking area. If you're looking for that traditional architecture, old wooden buildings, go here. And it has some of Kyoto's most iconic views. Absolutely. So we just talked about Fushimi Inari. And if I could recommend one shrine in the whole city you see, it's Fushimi Inari. If I could recommend one temple you see, it's Kiyomizudera. It's pretty impressive. Actually, this was at the very top of my list on my very first trip to Japan because I had found this uh, wallpaper for my computer that was a picture of Kiyomizudera from this. There's this one vantage point where you can see the temple building on the right and it just looks like it's kind of rising up above the trees. And then in the background, you just see the city of Kyoto stretching out. And it's just... It's breathtaking. It really is. I also love our <laughs> our different styles. You were like, I saw this picture, this beautiful place I want to go. I first went to Japan, I think I was 21. And it was my first time really like traveling by myself. And I was just like, I'm going to go to Japan. I'll go to Kyoto and Tokyo. And I had no idea what I was going to do. So we're sitting there in, at the bunny bar and I think Osaka and uh, we're, we're asking the workers there, like, we're going to Kyoto tomorrow. What should we see? <laughs> and everybody recommends Kiyomizudera. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know where we... It was the day before we were in Kyoto. And I didn't know what we were going to do. Yeah. And they, they did not steer me wrong. It's, it's a good place. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, like you said earlier, I think, you can do a trip to Japan in a lot of different ways. You could totally just show up and wing it. And you're going to have an amazing time. 
I think we talked in like episode three or something when we talked about how to plan a trip. Like I'm an obsessive planner. So I want to make sure like these are the top spots. I'm going to make sure that I hit all of these. Yeah. But it's just different styles, you know. I mean, it worked out for me, but I missed stuff. Like I missed the waterfalls at Kiyo Musadera that we're, we're about mm. to talk about. Well, I missed the bunny bar in Osaka, so. <laughs> they caught us. They flagged us down. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a bunny suit. Oh, you just saw a cute girl in a, in a bunny costume. That's what led you there? Yeah. Nice. And she's like, want to go to the bar? And my brother just kept walking. And then like <laughs> 100 feet later, I was like, actually, I kind of want a drink. <laughs> and we turned around and went in. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so we were talking about Kiyomiza, right? Yeah, um, we did a whole episode about this. Right, right, episode 55. We talked about it for an hour. So let's try to do the condensed version. Okay, what do you got? To me, it breaks down into three things. You got the stage, right? That's the huge stage built into like the side of the cliff that's incredibly picturesque that gets you the great views of the city. That's one of them you got to see, right? Yep. Then there's the waterfall, which is what I missed my first time there. That's kind of like underneath the stage. There's like an area where you can go down right. that I never found. And there's three little... Or the waterfall is divided into three little streams that like pour over the path and you can reach out and fill a cup attached to a pole and drink from it. And each of the three streams means something or has a different benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is longevity, one is success at school, and one is a fortunate love life. And those all sound great, but the catch is Drinking from all three is considered greedy. So you got to pick two of the three. Oh, is it two of the three? Uh, they didn't say two is greedy. I don't know. Okay. One, maybe if you want to be really safe, like I just want to get good grades. I'm just going to drink the school yeah. one. I'm sure we mentioned this in the episode. I just don't remember if we said it was like, you, you want to just stick with one or two is okay. I don't we remember. probably mentioned it. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to mention here something I don't think we mentioned in the Kiyomizu episode, actually, is uh, on my first trip there, I was approached by, I think, a couple different groups of school children. And this is something that could very well happen to you. I mean, it's, it happens all the time there because, uh, I mean, for one thing, Kiyomizu is a super popular temple. Tons of people visit it. It's also a destination for a ton of field trips for school groups. So they, they get these assignments where they're supposed to go find a foreigner, I think an English-speaking person, and uh, interview them, basically. Just ask a few questions like, where are you from? You know, Maybe how long are you staying in Kyoto? What are your favorite sites in Kyoto? Things like that. And it's kind of fun. I don't know. Depending on the type of person you are, I guess. I thought it was kind of entertaining. But um, And this isn't something that only happens at Kiyomizu either. i Pretty sure it also happened to me at Fushimi Inari. I think it happened even uh, in Kamakura. That's kind of funny. That that kind of reminds me a little bit of American school, where it's like we took a field trip to the amusement park, and it's like, you know, we're in school, we're going to the amusement park, but they're like, oh, but you have to take these physics measurements and do a <laughs> yeah. worksheet later, and that's yeah. like how you justify it. It can't be 100% fun. You need at least like 10% schoolwork. Yeah, we're going to go run around and enjoy the temple, but uh, here's a couple like things to do while you're here. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there'll be a lot of kids running around, but that's fun. They got the energy and stuff. It, it's cool. Yep. So third thing about Kiyomizu. You want to take this one? You think you can uh, know what my third thing is? Uh, I mean, I have one more thing. I was going to talk about the street that leads up to the temple. Okay. That's outside, so I didn't consider that, but okay. that's a good one. Uh, let me guess then. Is it the the rocks? Yeah. Okay. Jishu Shrine. Um, it's kind of like just up a little bit from the main stage area. It's a shrine dedicated to the deity of love and matchmaking. Mm-hmm. So there's these two big rocks, and you're supposed to start at one and close your eyes, and you got to walk 18 meters away and find and touch the other rock. And if you do so, you're going to find love. That's the idea. And someone can help you, but that means you're going to need someone to help you with your love life. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to need an intermediary to help you meet somebody. A matchmaker or a wingman, perhaps. <laughs> so it's really funny to go up there and like watch people. Some people are having like a ton of fun with it and their friends are helping them out or not helping them out. Other people are like kind of low-key really serious about it (laughs) and like trying really hard. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining to just hang out up there and and watch for a bit. And you can buy some cool little love charms and stuff. Yep. All right, sorry, short version. I'm done. I'm (laughs) done about, I'm done with Kiyomizu. Okay. So yeah, like I mentioned, the street that leads up to Kiyomizu is a great shopping area. And this is a a pretty common thing for temples. I mean, a lot of the bigger temples will have kind of a shopping street that leads up to them. Mm -hmm. But the one that leads up to Kiyomizu is especially cool. Like there's... Agreed. All sorts of stuff. You can buy souvenirs. You could stop and get some snacks. There's some street food. I got some sake-flavored ice cream on that street. Uh, Some senbei, which are rice crackers. It's kind of like a wide and comfortable street, too. Some Mm -hmm. of them are really skinny and crowded yeah i mean this one is crowded a lot of the time too but uh but it's fun yeah all right moving on uh just a bit north of kiyomiza is hokanji temple perhaps better known as yasaka noto or yasaka pagoda because the main attraction here is this 46 meter tall five-story pagoda that rises up above this very traditional-looking neighborhood. This is another one of those things that you've very possibly seen a picture of. People love taking one specific angle picture of this where you get like this kind of curved row of traditional shops and then like three stories of the pagoda in the background rising above it. Absolutely. I'd say this is probably the most popular pagoda in Japan, just because there are so many of those pictures out there. And you've taken this picture too, right, Jason? I have. And I bet you've already posted it probably, right? I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. It's probably out there on our Instagram, maybe our website too. Yeah. I'll post it again. I have so many Kyoto pictures. Once this episode comes out, they will be all over Instagram, I promise. Nice. So it's funny, actually. If you Google Yasaka Pagoda, I mean, for one thing, if you look at the picture results, they're all going to look pretty much the same because they're all from this, this one spot that just has the perfect view of it. People come out like early in the morning to like get this shot with nobody in the way. Mm-hmm. Or at night, like just after dusk is really nice because the shops are still lit up and like you got the you know, deep blue sky. That's kind of cool. 
Um, but another thing I thought was funny is that if you look at Google Maps around that area, that specific vantage point where people love to take those pictures is actually labeled as its own tourist attraction. Really? Like separate from the pagoda. <laughs> There's a little pin on Google Maps that just says, good spot for pictures. Yeah, stand right <laughs> here, turn that way. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I remember we walked down that street and I got to see, like you down the whole street, it's kind of like the perfect framing of the pagoda and then you just kind of pop out at the pagoda and you're looking up at it it's really it's really cool it is really cool you get that old-timey kyoto feel in that area of town definitely uh just west of this pagoda you're going to find keninji temple which uh i mentioned in the history section this is the oldest zen temple in kyoto it was founded in 1202 and it's beautiful uh, most of the grounds are free to wander around but you do have to pay to get into the main buildings. And I recommend you do, because there's some amazing art in there. They have a painting of twin dragons on the ceiling of the Dharma Hall. There are some more dragons painted on sliding doors. If you like old traditional dragons, go here, I guess. There's apparently also a gilded folded screen that has some famous images of wind and thunder gods. Nice. So a lot of really cool artwork here is what it sounds like. Yeah. They also have some amazing gardens that are perfectly framed when you're looking out at them from inside. And this is one thing that I love about old temples. Like they have these beautiful gardens that you can walk around, but then they've also very carefully considered the vantage point from inside the temple. And it's like the doors are a picture frame. Yeah, I love that. That's so cool. It's like the second level. It's like being outside. You're like, I'm going to make this garden like look amazing. And then taking it one step further and thinking about what's the garden going to look like when I'm in the building looking out this window and what exactly is going to be included. And I love that. I think that's so cool. Yeah. And the harmony between like this natural wood interior of the building with, you know, the bright green garden outside is just, it's amazing. Okay, so from, where were we? We were at Keninji. Uh, let's head northeast a ways. We're going to aim towards Nanzenji Temple, which is another real important one. But before we get there, I have another place I want to stop, Paul. Okay. And I, I haven't been here personally. I don't think you have either. Uh, I hadn't even heard about this place. The Keage Incline? No, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Keage Incline used to be a railroad track, and you can still see the rails there, but it's been converted into a pedestrian trail. And especially if you're in Kyoto in the spring, you want to visit this place because this path is lined with cherry trees and when they're blooming and the petals are fluttering down onto the path and it's just, there's, you know, pink petals everywhere you look, it's insane. Like, if you Google pictures of this place, Keage Incline, K-E-A-G-E, -E, it'll just blow your mind. Yeah. Looks like a really peaceful place. Mm -hmm. And don't be intimidated by the word incline. You know, that makes it maybe sound like it's a, a hike, like you have to climb this big hill or something. It's a slight incline. Yeah, I think it's like a difference of 30 meters or so along the whole thing. Yeah, so it's more of a leisurely walk than a strenuous hike. Yeah. 
And once you get to the end of the incline, if you want to make your way over to Nanzenji Temple, there's actually this path that goes through the woods along a little canal, and you pop out right at the temple. I wish we had known about that when we were there. <laughs> and, you know, the, the little paths through the woods, like there's, there's a lot of stuff like that in these types of areas in Kyoto. And I just love that because you can spend all day walking between all of these temples and the entire time you're just surrounded by beauty. Like there isn't necessarily a spot where you need to like get on a train and, or trek through like the concrete jungle to get to the next area, you know? All of these temples are connected by these beautiful natural places. Yeah, we walked. Mm -hmm. Like we just walked all day and saw so many places. Yeah. I don't think we took any trains or buses. Mm -mm. We, we, just, we walked from our hotel room and just saw everything. Yeah, we went to Tofukuji and then we just hiked up the eastern edge of Kyoto to see all these places. Yeah. Pretty great. Including um, Nanzenji, which is where we're at now. Right. Um, but sorry, Paul, there is one more place I wanted to stop. I just want to get to Nanzenji, Okay, bro. okay. I just need like a few photo ops at this one <laughs> spot, okay? Okay, yeah, you would, you would. All right, <laughs> all right, all right. So at, that, at the end of that path through the woods, you're going to come across some other temples and this place called the Suidokaku Water Bridge. Did you see this, Paul? What's a water bridge? I'll tell you. It is a raised brick aqueduct from the 1890s that's still in use today, and it looks super cool. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, I think I heard about that. You got like these big brick arches, and you know, it actually reminded me of uh, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood. That game takes place in Rome, and there are these ancient aqueducts that you, you know, yeah. that are around, it and definitely it looks, looks exactly like Roman that. Roman style, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I took my pictures. We're at Nanzenji. All right. Nanzenji. It's old. It dates from the 13th century in its founding. And it's one of the most important Zen temples, not just in Kyoto, but the entire country. This yes. temple actually sits at the apex of the Kyoto Gozan, those great five Zen temples. From what I saw, they say that it holds a supervisory role over the rest of the temples. So this is like the very, very top. Okay. So one of the first things you'll come across is this massive Sanmon, the entrance gate. It's really tall. And it was constructed in 1628 by the Tokugawa shogunate. And it's, it was for the soldiers who died in the Battle of Osaka in 1615. Hmm. So you can climb up on the top of this gate and have a view of the city, and also the mountains and the forest behind it from the top. That's where we have all those pictures, right? Where we spent like 10 minutes up there just looking around. Yep. Got yep. that nice view, picture of me staring off into the distance. Yep. It's a pretty artsy one. Yeah. You're a good photographer. You actually Thank make you. me look okay. Oh, thanks, Paul. You look amazing in any picture, though. Oh. Don't sell yourself oh. short. It's like hearing your own voice, seeing your own picture. You're like, <laughs> God, I look like that. Yeah, I hear that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, this place is beautiful. We were there in the fall, so climbing up to the top of that gate and looking out over all the nature. I mean, there are just so many trees around, you know, there are mountains rising up behind the temple. And with all those fall colors, it was incredible. Yeah. It's also famous for its rock garden, which has rocks that are said to resemble 
tigers and cubs crossing through water. Mm-hmm. So that's worth a look too. They have some more tigers there too. They're, they have paintings of tigers on a gold leaf on some of the sliding doors in the temple. That's pretty cool. Uh, Paul, did you realize that this temple wasn't actually built to be a temple? Uh, was this one of those retirement villas? Yeah, there are a few of those around Kyoto. Uh, this was the retirement villa for Emperor Kameyama in the 13th century. And then it was later converted into a temple. Okay. So another notable thing about Nanzenji is that this is right around where the philosopher's path begins. I think we've mentioned this briefly a couple times before on the podcast, maybe. We definitely once talked about how cool this was. It is really cool. So the philosopher's path is a stone path around two kilometers long that follows along this little canal through the northern Higashiyama district. And again, if you're there in spring, this is another area that has a lot of cherry trees. So that would be beautiful. But it's also beautiful the rest of the year. Paul and I, again, were there in fall. I mean, we walked along this right after we visited Nanzenji. Yeah. And it's great. Like, it's one of those places that I was talking about where you're just walking through nature and everything around you is beautiful. You pass by a bunch of temples. Maybe you'll see some stray cats. Maybe uh, if you get hungry, you can stop at one of the little cafes. Like, it just feels like kind of a quaint, peaceful, calm, beautiful area. Those yeah. are all the adjectives yeah. that I have for this area. You're walking along the canal. There's cats running around. There's these little cafes that feel, it feels like small neighborhood type feel. Mm-hmm. It's really nice. Yep. They got vending machines. You can stop for some ice cream or some tasty drinks. One thing I didn't realize when we were walking down it, Philosopher's Path, I thought just because it was like linking all these temples and stuff that it was like, something to do with philosophers, but no, I was wrong. I was mistaken. Uh, it's called the philosopher's path because one of Japan's most famous philosophers, Nishida Kitaro, was known to practice meditation while walking down this route every day on his way to Kyoto University. Mm-hmm. That is true. So at the end of this path, you're going to find... The Silver Pavilion, or Ginkakuji. You might remember from the history section, I mentioned Kakuji. Kin is gold, Gin is silver. So there, there's actually a golden pavilion and a silver pavilion in Kyoto. And this is the, the silver one that we're talking about now. But it's not like coated in silver or anything like that. But it is a really impressive place. It's got some amazing gardens. It's got some like rustic wooden traditional buildings. And this is another place that was originally a retirement villa. Yeah. Uh, The shogun Ashikaga Yoshimasa built this as his retirement villa in 1482. And it got converted into a Zen temple upon his death. Yeah. And why is it called the Silver Pavilion? Well, I think it's thought that uh, his grandfather was the one that built the Golden Pavilion. And it was kind of modeled upon that. So that might be possibly where it got the name. I didn't realize it was his grandfather that built Keen Kakuji. I just saw that he modeled his villa after Keen Kakuji. Yeah, it was his grandfather. Cool. And we'll get to the Golden Pavilion, but the Golden Pavilion actually is gold. Yeah. And I saw a really interesting note that it kind of reflected the change of culture. 
Oh. The Golden Pavilion was kind of at a time where it was like, bling, bling, we're living large, we're showing off. And then by the time it got to the grandson and the Silver Pavilion, it had swung back to the arts and refinement. And that's when they started developing uh, the tea ceremonies and stuff. So it, it had gone away from that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. We talked in the last episode, the tea ceremony episode, about how the Silver Pavilion was kind of a place where a lot of those traditional arts developed, uh, the tea ceremony, and just kind of this more rustic style of like wabi-sabi and natural bamboo tea tools instead of fancy, you know, silver stuff that had come in from China. It's kind of an interesting thought now, too, like the way society swings like that. Are we just going to like go all show offy and we're going to like build the Burj Al Khalifa and show that we can make the biggest building ever? Or are we going to like invest in the arts and developing culture and not being so bling bling? Yeah. Everyone can have their opinion on which one they think is better, but it's it's interesting. There's cool things that come out of each because mm-hmm. the Golden Pavilion is a really cool place. Yeah. I mean, both of these places are really cool. I haven't personally been to the Golden Pavilion, but okay. uh, I've seen, seen the pictures. There are yeah. plenty of those out there. All right, so I think we've covered the major things to visit on the east side of the city. And that whole area could take you a day or two, depending on the pace that you want to go at, how many stops you want to make, how many of those temples you want to see. Uh, But now let's head over to the northwestern part of the city and check out what I think is my personal favorite part of Kyoto called Arashiyama. And this is a great place. You could spend a whole day in Arashiyama. There's plenty to see there. Absolutely. Where do you want to start? Well, I think... It makes sense to start at Saga Arashiyama Station. You can get there in a straight shot from Kyoto Station. No problem. You just take the train over there. Okay. And then the whole area of Arashiyama is pretty walkable, like maybe even more walkable than the east side that we talked about already because things are kind of pretty close together. There's like this one main street that goes through the area. Yeah, I remember being very close together. Yeah. Um, So do you want to start at the south end? of Arashiyama and move north? Sure. All right, so let's start. We're going to head down from the station and we're going to cross the Katsura River. Um, but before we get there, there's one thing I want to stop and see. And I haven't been here personally, but I've seen people talk about it and it looks really cool. And that is the Kimono Forest. This is right outside Arashiyama Station. And just just so nobody gets confused, uh, we showed up at Saga Arashiyama Station, and then south from there is Arashiyama Station, which is where this kimono forest is. You see a lot of that in Japan, where there are like train stations that have very similar names, but they're on like different train lines. So uh, it's a forest of kimonos, sort of a little <laughs> bit. So right next to this train station, there are around 600 two-meter-tall pillars. They're just these cylinders that are sticking up out of the ground, and they're wrapped in kimono fabric. Like, it's not whole kimonos. It's just the fabric, but it's showing off 
all these different designs and colors, and it, it looks amazing, especially at night. I've seen a lot of pictures of where these pillars are actually lit up from the inside, so it's like they're glowing, and uh, they look really cool. Yeah, it looks it looks great. I saw that dusk is supposed to be the best time to visit. Okay. Catch it on the way home. Yeah. Okay, so let's cross that river I mentioned, Katsura River. And there's this famous bridge, actually, that crosses that river called the Togetsukyo Bridge. That's a tourist attraction in its own right. Yeah, it's this long, low pedestrian bridge over the river. It's got the mountains right behind it and the river underneath it. It's really cool. It looks pretty. And there's street food stalls on both sides of it, like all over the place. Yeah, it's a pretty place. And it's a a 400-year-old wooden bridge. That's cool. I'm sure they've done some repairs and stuff, but uh, yeah, but it's been there for quite a while. You can even take a rickshaw across it yeah. and rent those. Actually, all over the Arashiyama area, I've seen there are a bunch of rickshaw places where you can pay somebody to pull you along and tell you about the area, a little like tour kind of thing. Yeah. So once we finish crossing the bridge... We're really close to the entrance to Arashiyama Monkey Park, which is right at the base of the mountains. Yeah, we've mentioned this place a few times on the podcast before. Episode 58, we talked about animal islands and villages. And we mentioned this place because basically it's a place where you can hang out with wild monkeys on top of a mountain. How cool is that? Yeah, it's a bit of a climb, but not too crazy. The higher you get, the more monkeys you start seeing, which is kind of fun. Yeah, and you can even feed the monkeys. Once you get to the top, there's this little, like, caged-in room sort of thing so that the monkeys can't, like, bite off your fingers or anything. Yeah, you gotta, like, lock yourself in a cage (laughs) so the monkeys don't beat you up and take your food. It's like a shark cage, but a monkey cage. (laughs) So, yeah, you can buy, like, little pieces of apple or peanuts. You can feed them through the... Kind of chicken wire. Yeah, it's like a fence sort of thing, wire fence. Uh, but you can also go outside and walk around with them. You just don't get to feed them yourself outside that Yeah, room. they're all over the place. Yeah. And at certain times of day, they play some music, and one of the workers there just starts throwing out food, and you can see the monkeys go crazy. And uh, really amazing views of the city, too. Definitely, yep. Once you get to the top. Yep. So I think that's enough for that, since we've talked about it before, right? Yeah. But I I highly recommend episode 58. I think that was a pretty fun one. There are so many cool places in Japan where you can go hang out with animals. Yep. All right, so let's cross back across the bridge. We're going back north, and uh, we're going to continue straight ahead at the end of that bridge. And now we're on kind of the main street that goes through Arashiyama, And most of the touristy stuff kind of branches off of this street. So on the left, after a few blocks, we're going to find Tenryuji, which is a beautiful Zen temple with a pretty big temple complex. There's a lot to see and do there. Uh, There are a bunch of sub-temples that you can check out. There's a very nice garden. You can see the bamboo grove at the back of the garden. There's a whole lot of moss in that garden. I'm a big fan of the moss. So Tenryuji was built in 1339 by the ruling shogun, Ashikaga Takauji. 
he dedicated the temple to Emperor Go Daigo, who had just passed away. And the reason he did this is because they used to be allies, but the shogun turned against the emperor in a struggle for power at the end. And he dedicated this temple to him to try to appease him Mm. in the afterlife. Like, man, I'm sorry, bud. Things didn't quite go the way we might have wished at the end. So here's a temple for you. Yep. Well, he felt remorse, I think. Sure. Or fear or both. (laughs) It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, This is actually also another temple that's in the Kyoto Gozan, those five great Zen temples. And it's the head temple of the Rinzai School of Zen Buddhism. And I got one of my favorite souvenirs there. What's that? It's a little uh, bracelet with like these wooden beads and the Heart Sutra is carved into the wooden beads. Like like really tiny and intricate. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. So let's keep going down the main street. And what uh, what is the next really cool thing we come across? Well, I'll tell you. A couple more blocks gets us to the entrance of Kyoto's extremely famous Bamboo Grove. This is yet another one of those places where you've probably seen some photographs. Yeah. If you've seen any pictures from Japan of a path that's going through this bamboo grove and they're just like super, super tall. Uh, what do we call them? Culms of bamboo? Is that the word? That sounds or right, no. but it's been a while since that episode. Stalks? They're grass. What's grass called? Grass would be uh, blades of grass. But bamboo is too big. It is technically a grass, but uh, I'm pretty sure culm is the, the right word there. Okay. Anyway, so you got these real tall columns of bamboo on both sides of you. And the grove is so thick that in any direction, you will see bamboo as far as you can see. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's a really nice walk. It's beautiful. Very picturesque. You definitely got to get there really early if you want a picture without a ton of people in it. Yes. And if you get there when there's not big crowds, it's also really cool to hear the bamboo swaying and like clacking against each other in the wind. Yeah. One thing I didn't know when we were there that's kind of interesting is they actually use the bamboo from that grove to make things. They make baskets and cups and mats and boxes and stuff. So there's somewhere nearby where you can like buy something made from the bamboo in that grove that you have a picture with. I think that's Mm. really cool. I think I also have pictures of a shop that I found right outside that grove that sells exclusively things made from bamboo. I didn't realize that they got it from that bamboo grove, but thinking back, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, that'd be such a cool souvenir. Yeah. You know, I was kind of guilted into buying something there because when I walked in there, the proprietor greeted me and then brought over a tray, a bamboo tray, with a bamboo cup with tea in it. And they offered oh. me tea. And I was like, oh, that is so nice. So I, uh, I ended up buying a little, a little bamboo cup. It worked. He got you. Yeah. She, or she, she got, got you. Me. When you first said that, I, I thought, would you use their bathroom? <laughs> I was like going to a gas station when I'm on a road trip and use the bathroom. And I'm like, I should buy a drink or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, that never actually happened to me in Japan. 
But in LA, when I visited little Tokyo, I went into the shop one time and I used the bathroom and then I came out and the lady working there started yelling at me like, you got to buy some, you got to buy some to use the bathroom. I'm like, ah, oh. honestly, I should have just run out because I think that's, I don't think that's cool to force people to buy things to use a bathroom. I think bathrooms should be publicly available, but, uh, but I did buy a, a bottle of I agree. something. I see why people are hesitant about that because Unfortunately, I know from experience in my career that people cause problems in bathrooms sometimes. But if you already used it and you didn't, no harm, no foul, right? Yeah. I should have just run out the door and be like, nope, yeah. not today. I always feel bad, though, so I'll buy it to you or something, you know? Yeah. I feel like such a chump walking out with this drink that I didn't even want. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, is that it for the bamboo grove? Yeah, let's keep moving. All right. So if you follow that trail through the bamboo grove and you get to the end, you're going to pop out at the entrance to Okochi Sanso Villa. We got another villa. This was the former home and garden of Denjiro Okochi, who was a famous actor in period films in the early to mid-1900s. Paul, have you been here? I haven't, no. I did walk through here. Uh, it was a thousand yen to get in. That's, which, that's like slightly steep. Yeah, it might seem kind of steep because it's basically just like a giant garden. And, you know, you can see a lot of gardens at temples and stuff. But I would say it's worth it. Maybe not if you have like a family of four and you got to spend like 40 bucks to go yeah, through there. Yeah, oof. But if you're on your own and you want to see some pretty sights and a nice garden i'd say it's worth it there are spots where you can look out over the city which is really nice and i think the biggest thing that kind of compensates for that price is that at the very end you can stop and get a cup of matcha and a sweet treat and just kind of relax and look out at the garden so that's kind of nice that like, makes it so much more reasonable yeah like, you know, it's like five bucks to get in and like five bucks for the tea and the sweet. Or, yeah. you know, if you think about it that way, it's much more reasonable. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of temples where you, you go in and you have to pay 500 yen for a cup of matcha. Yeah. So, yeah, it balances out. I was just thinking originally, like most temples you can get in for like 400, 800 yen or so, you know, and then you're like, ah, oh, this actor's villa and it's a thousand yen. Yeah. But it comes with the food and drink. I like that. Yep. All right. Where should we head next? Well, there's plenty more to see in Arashiyama. I mean, we could spend a lot more time talking about it, but the one specific place that I want to make sure to mention. Yes. One last place. Gyoji Temple. This, this might sound crazy, but this is my absolute favorite place in Kyoto. Really? Yes. So it's a really tiny temple, actually. The grounds are not big, but they are amazing. So it's a little temple. It's tucked back in this neighborhood. Like it's in a place where you wouldn't expect to find a temple, really. Yeah, here it's like nestled like back in the forest, kind of. Yeah, you get to the end of this little residential road, and then you just see this little sign. This is a Gyoji Temple. Check this out. And you go in there, and it's amazing. Uh, I recommend Googling this place, G I. O 
J.I. Temple. Look at those pictures. It's just, it's magical. It's like another world. There's this little moss garden, and it's surrounded by bamboo. Here he goes about the moss again. I love the moss. (laughs) I don't know. And they keep it so clean. Like, there are never any dead leaves on the moss or anything. It's just like this little carpet of moss on the ground, and then these trees. Didn't we learn, it must have been the gardens episode, that they actually, like, brush or comb the moss to like keep it clean of all the leaves and stuff that falls on it yeah i thought that was super cool that's what makes it look so otherworldly you know you got all these trees that are providing so much shade so it's like you're in this little secluded bubble it's like a little bubble of beauty (laughs) a bubble of beauty that's what i'm calling it that's cool that's one uh, I did not have time to. We only spent half a day in Arashiyama because I had to go. I could only get like 10 days off of work. Yeah, we just spent a morning there. Because, you know, work in America, that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't even have PTO back then. So every day I was gone, I was just missing the money that I would have made. That kind of ticked my clock a little faster, I think. Yeah. Thankful to have PTO these days. It's good to have. Yeah. Yeah. Gyoji Temple. Oh, man. Not only one of my favorite places in Kyoto, I'd say one of my favorite spots on the planet. Like if I could spend some time there every day, I would just be so happy. And another thing about it is that it's so kind of hidden away. It's not very busy. Like I only saw a few people there. I don't want to like cop an attitude here, but... This is your favorite place in the world, and you brought me to the monkey park instead? What, you didn't like the monkey park? I mean, it was cool, but it wasn't my favorite place in the world. I don't know why we didn't go here together. We just ran out of time, I guess. Yeah, maybe it was like, if we have time, we'll keep going, and we just didn't. I probably wanted to eat. I know the last thing we did was eat a nice big meal. That's how I am, though. I'm about to take a big flight. I better eat something. Yeah. Maybe someday we'll make it back there. Oh, we will. I think I think we both have enough PTO saved up that when we get the chance, Japan's happening. Absolutely. And we're going to party like we haven't been in Japan in years. We're going to party like it's 1603. Yeah. I don't take anything for granted anymore. I'm going to party like it's the last time I'm ever going to have a chance to get in Japan. Because maybe it will be. Who knows? So we've seen a lot of stuff on the outskirts of Kyoto. Mm -hmm. But there's some really cool stuff in central Kyoto, too. We're probably on like our third day now. We've seen so much stuff. Yeah. So let's spend our third day in central Kyoto. And I want us to start at Kinkakuji because we've talked about this. The Golden Pavilion, and it's actually golden. Yeah. And it's brilliant. Yeah, it's covered in gold leaf. There's this pavilion that's kind of on the edge of a pond. And I personally haven't been here, and I think the reason for that is because I've always heard that, for one thing, it's super crowded, because it's just one of the most popular places in Kyoto. But also, like if you've seen the pictures, that's kind of all there is to experience there. Like you're just going to get that picture in real life, but you've been here, right? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? Is it worth a visit? Yes. 
So I really only went to like two things. I spent one day in Kyoto on my first trip. And we went to Kiyomizu and we went to Kinkakuji. And that was pretty much our day because we were staying in Osaka and we had to get back. And our train got delayed in the morning on the way there. And that's just how it went. But it's just, it's amazing. I mean, it is what it looks in the picture. So if you're one of those people that are like, I've seen the picture, I think I'm good. But like seeing it in person and the whole thing is it's just the Golden Pavilion right next to a pond. And you just walk around the pavilion in the pond. And that's pretty much everything that's there. Like, that's it. You just just see the pavilion in the pond. You know, there might be a couple other things, but that's 90% of it. Mm -hmm. But it reflects off the pond, so you can see it double, and you can see it from all the different angles. I think it's worth it. I don't know if it's worth it the way I did it, where I went all the way across town one way, and then I went all the way across town the other way, and I only saw two things all day. But if you're passing by it, or you're seeing other things in central Kyoto, it's only going to take you like 30, 45 minutes to get in there and walk around it and see it. For me personally, seeing something in person is different than a photograph. Yeah. Like you want to get the really cool photographs, but seeing something really beautiful in person is always worth it. Cool. I get that. Um, But yeah, one thing to know about this place is that it's a little bit out of the way. Like, it's not really near a lot of other stuff. Yeah, dude, I spent like 35 minutes on a cramped, sweaty bus Mm. to get there. Yeah, there are no trains that go there. So your options are basically a bus or a taxi. Or a bicycle. You could do that. We'll talk talk about transportation later. Yes, yes. But yeah, I haven't been to that part of the city just because Kinkakuji seems like really the only thing worth visiting around that area. Uh, another place in central Kyoto that we haven't mentioned is Nijo Castle. This was built in 1603 as the Kyoto residence of Tokugawa Ieyasu, an extremely important character in Japanese history uh, and a name that you've definitely heard before if you've listened to the podcast. He comes up a few times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the first Tokugawa Shogun. Yeah. He was kind of a big deal. And we just talked about earlier in the history part of the episode about how the capital moved to, or not the capital, but the government moved to Edo. And it mostly did. But the, the Shogun still needed to be in Kyoto sometimes because it was still officially the capital. So that's why they built this residence here for, you know, political reasons. Right. And what I thought was cool about this place is it has a surprising number of buildings. Like a lot of the castles that you see in Japan only really have the main castle keep. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of the other buildings have been destroyed or whatever. But this place actually has a decent-sized complex. There's a lot of stuff there. Have you seen this in person? No, I didn't visit. I didn't either. And I think about it, I'm like, how did I not see... Nijo Castle or the Imperial Palace, but it's like, oh yeah, because I've only spent four days in Kyoto and there's eight million things to see, right? Yeah. Like, I regret nothing that I saw, but yeah. it's still hard to believe I didn't get to either of these places. Well, this is another one of those places that's not really super close to a lot of other stuff. Yeah, it's so just hanging central Kyoto. Yeah, you gotta just you gotta set aside some time. Okay, I'm gonna go to Nijo Castle. That's my that's on my itinerary for today. I thought it was a really cool historical note that 
it became the Imperial Palace for a little time. Oh. In uh, 1867. Interesting. So right before the capital moved to Addo, it became the Imperial Palace for, I don't know, a year or two or whatever. Cool. Didn't know that. And it's uh, it's supposed to be one of the best examples remaining of the medieval period architecture. Because when the Tokugawa shogunate came to power, they banned people from building castles. That was partly how they kept the peace. You can't build a secure place, then you can't rebel against me. So yeah. they built their own castle, but no one else could. So it's one of the last places really built in that style. Yeah, most castles were built during the Sengoku period, right? When there were all those warlords yeah. running around And Japan. most of them got destroyed before everything was said and done because it was the Warring States period and they were constantly warring. Yeah. Cool. So just northeast from this castle, Nijo Castle, is the Kyoto Imperial Palace. The actual Imperial Palace for, you know, a longer time than Nijo Castle was the Imperial Palace, I guess. And the palace is surrounded by Kyoto Gyoen National Garden. And just the whole place looks pretty amazing. This is another place that I haven't visited in person, Paul. I assume you haven't either. I have not. I love that they turned it into a public garden. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I try not to talk politics out here, but uh, something about seeing like a king or an emperor's place become a public place, <laughs> like just does it for me. It warms your heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where the emperor of Japan lived until, well, I guess 1867. What I saw in my research was that the emperor lived there until 1868, but you said that in 1867, Nijo Castle became the Imperial Palace. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I saw that too, but I think it's people just like, they've got three paragraphs to summarize the history of this place, yeah. and they just kind of, that's what happened. Yeah. Okay. So in the past, you used to have to make a tour reservation to check out these palace grounds, but these days, you can actually just wander around without joining a tour. But there are still tours that are also in English if you want to learn more about the details. The current palace there was reconstructed in 1855 after it burned out. Which, you know, you can't predict the future, but it's kind of like too bad that like, oh, let's rebuild the whole Puro Palace. And then the Meiji Restoration happens and, <laughs> you know... 15 years later or whatever, they just, like, moved to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, what a waste. But at least it's a nice tourist attraction now, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, it's a cool place. We can all go visit now. All right, so we've spent the last, I don't know, a long time, an two, hour Two and plus, a half days. <laughs> talking about, honestly, a lot of temples and shrines, and that's a lot of what is in Kyoto. You know, you got all this ancient history, temples and shrines. And then the palaces. Yeah. And we've, we've still only covered a fraction of the temples and shrines in Kyoto. But let's be honest, you can only see so many temples and shrines before they kind of start to blend together, right? You know? Yeah, other than the extremely impressive ones like Fushimi and Nari that are like truly unique, you're right. You're yeah. right. Like you go under the gate and you see the main hall and yeah. yeah. Like my fiance, for example, she's spent some time in Japan and she's told me like, I'm just not interested in the temples and shrines anymore. I've seen so many of them. 
what else is there, you know? So let's cover some of the stuff in Kyoto that is not temples and shrines and ancient history type stuff. Hey, I mean, we said it's the cultural center of Japan, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot here. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start. Okay, go for it. International Manga Museum. Yes. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Huge complex packed with this massive collection of manga. That's not all there is, but that's kind of the main exhibit. Like just perusing this insane amount of manga, including a section for foreign and translated manga too. Yeah, I saw that they have manga in several languages and you could just hang out there and read for a while. Yeah. They have around 300,000 volumes of manga and they also have an exhibition that examines the role that manga has played in Japanese culture. So it just seems like a nice place to relax if you're kind of templed and shrined out, maybe, and you just need some time to relax and read some manga. Yeah, and I think it's kind of cool. They do a lot of uh, things to try to develop manga internationally, too. They host manga artists that aren't Japanese, and do events with them and exhibits and stuff. It's really cool. Nice. And it's really easy to get to. It's like a five-minute train ride from Kyoto Station, and then a two-minute walk, and you're there. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool. So if you got a couple extra hours, boom. Manga Museum. What do you want to do in Kyoto? Well, I found a lot of places in Kyoto where you can learn traditional Japanese skills. Mm -hmm, Me too. What do, what do you sign it up for? Well, you know, I've never held a real authentic katana before. And I think that would be a pretty cool experience. So you can do that. You can learn how to fight like a samurai at the Kyoto Samurai and Ninja Museum. Yeah. I saw they even have some of those classes. In some of those classes, they have like the, uh, I guess it's tatami. That's kind of like this little pillar of tatami. Yeah. And you get to slice through it with the sword. Yeah. Ah, oh, dude, that's like all my geek fantasies coming true. It right does there. sound pretty cool. This is actually the number one ranked museum in Kyoto. Wow. And, you know, it's called Samurai and Ninja Museum. Not only can you swing a, a katana, learn to fight like a samurai, they also have ninja skills that you can learn. But I also found a bunch of other places in Kyoto where you can do that. If you just Google Kyoto Ninja Training, you'll find a bunch of results. Yeah, yeah, there's more than one. Yeah. So if you want to stimulate your brain with some high culture, there's also calligraphy classes. That would be fun. There's a bunch of pottery classes I saw to varying degrees of how long and how deep you want to get into it. And here's one that really stood out to me. There was an izakaya-style cooking class. Nice. So izakaya is kind of like the neighborhood bar. So it's teaching you like probably like fried chicken and udon noodles and all that like comfort food type stuff. That'd be awesome. I've gotten into some Japanese cooking, but you know, it's all from like these websites. Like it would be cool to learn directly from... Yeah, the masters uh, themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. Uh, I saw that there are places where you can learn traditional dances. You can learn to play traditional instruments like a koto. 
Oh, nice. There are a bunch of experiences like that to be had. There are also, uh, I don't know, I found a bunch of cooking classes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's also sushi, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. The last cool one I saw was uh, origami class. That'd be fun. Yeah. I was really into origami as a kid. I don't know why I stopped. Maybe I should get back into that. It's, it's a pretty relaxing practice, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. It seems so hard, but if you just follow step by step, like all of a sudden you have a crane. Like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Yeah, you can make some amazing stuff. I think my issue is like, what do you do with it? Yeah, you know, yeah. do I just fill my my home with origami <laughs> everywhere? Yeah. Seems so, like you kind of do it for a while, and then you like you, you stop. Yeah, it's fun though. Yeah, absolutely. And cheap. Like, it's a cheap hobby. You just get some paper, start folding. So where are you off to next? Well, if you like sea creatures, you could visit Kyoto Aquarium. They have around 250 different types of sea creatures there. I heard the unique thing about this is that they have a section of the aquarium that's local aquatic life from the rivers that run through Kyoto. Cool. So it's kind of like a little local river section. Nice. That's something you won't get to see probably anywhere else. Yeah. Um, Going back to the traditional culture of Kyoto, if you're interested in seeing a geisha perform, that might be a possibility. I saw that there's an event called Miyako Odori. Uh, It's an annual geisha performance held every April at Gion Kobu Kaburenjo Theater, which was established in 1873. There aren't a ton of places where you can actually see a geisha perform in person. That's true. So Kyoto, Kyoto's a good place for that, obviously, since they have all that traditional stuff. I heard if you're staying at a high-end hotel or a ryokan, they might be able to help you acquire some tickets hmm. to see a show. Nice. You know, but it all depends on the timing and if they're performing and whatnot. Yeah, that's something you probably want to plan ahead. Yeah. There definitely seem to be some travel agencies that work with the geishas where you can book some sort of experience. Yeah. Uh, If you're into shopping, maybe you want to spend a day just looking at cool stuff you can buy. That's always fun because Japan has a lot of stuff that you really can't find anywhere else. You know, it's just like I'm not a big shopping person. But I still really enjoy those shopping streets in Japan where you just see stuff that you would never find in your home country. Yeah. Uh, there's two main shopping districts in Kyoto. One of them is right around Kyoto Station. There's a big underground mall and there's some other shopping. But there's also downtown Kyoto, which is a little bit north. And there's a ton of shopping there. And there's a lot more like food and restaurants and cafes. So that can kind of be a nicer place in that way. Nice. That's where I found my nice vegan restaurant. Oh, is that the one that you you split off and did on your own when I went to that meat restaurant? Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I went downtown to this little vegan restaurant. Nice. It was very good. Cool. Yeah. Uh, If you're into art, I saw that the Kyoto National Museum is a good destination too. They have over 10,000 pieces of historical art, including over 100 national treasures. Yeah. Museum's over 100 years old. And it is one of the top museums in Japan. Oh, man, we've been running around the city, dude. I am starving. 
I got just the thing for you, Paul. What's that? Food. Yeah! (laughs) There is a ton of great food in Kyoto, especially traditional food. Uh, One thing you could check out is called Shojin Ryori, which is essentially temple food, uh, which is vegetarian by definition. Like, Buddhist monks eat vegetarian meals. And uh, you can find them all over the place. You'll find different types of tofu, pickled veggies, rice, soup, a lot of good stuff. So one thing in particular special to Kyoto is yudofu. So this was born in Kyoto. as a tofu dish. You put kelp in a pot with water, and then you put the tofu on top, and you boil the tofu. And you scoop the tofu out and you eat it with a dipping sauce. That's a ponzu-based, which I looked up. And it seems to be like soy sauce and citrus. Yeah. You can get that at the grocery store in the ethnic food section or whatever they call it. International food. So that originated in Kyoto. That is a Kyoto specialty. And there's some old restaurants that specialize specifically in yudofu. Awesome. Um, I found a specific restaurant that looked pretty interesting at Tenryuji, actually, that temple we talked about in Arashiyama. They have a restaurant called Shigetsu, and you get to eat your meal in a big tatami mat room overlooking the gardens. Nice. It's like a really nice experience there. Yeah, that's awesome. And they serve that, you know, the temple food type stuff. Yeah. Um, another place you definitely want to visit if you're into food is Nishiki Market. This is a 400-year-old market. They have stalls selling all sorts of food. And a lot of it is like types of things that you would want to bring home to cook. You know, they got a lot of like fish and stuff that you want to cook. But there's also a bunch of stuff that you can just buy and eat immediately. Just like street food type stuff. I even, I saw a bunch of pictures of this area where a lot of the stalls have signs up that say like, Fresh, eat now, eat now, okay. You know, they're telling you like, oh, this, you can just buy it and eat it right here. (laughs) They have uh, like little baby octopi on a stick or different types of like sashimi. I saw some like raw scallops that you can just eat right there. So if you're into seafood, this would be a a great place to visit. I heard that uh, Nishiki Market is called Kyoto's Pantry. Mm, I like that. Oh, they have fresh sea urchin there. Oh, man. I freaking love sea urchin. Uh, I went to a market in Kanazawa where I got some fresh uni, which is sea urchin. And, oh, man, nothing like it. It's, it's just amazing. Oh, another thing that I saw that I have not tasted that seemed really unusual was sparrow on a stick. What? Sparrow. Like the bird? The bird. Okay. They, I, I guess they got the feathers off of it, and then it looked like its wings were kind of like stretched out, and it was on a stick, and it was in some sort of sauce. It seems like a bird that small wouldn't have enough meat to really They left the wings like on? Was supposed to gnaw on the wing? It looks like it. I don't know. All right. It's like a chicken wing, just much, much smaller. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I'll have to try that next time I'm there. Okay. Let us know. Let us know how that went. I'll report back. 
Uh, we mentioned matcha earlier. Matcha is something that you should definitely try if you haven't had it before. And you will be able to find it all over Kyoto. Yeah, Kyoto is kind of the home base of the tea ceremony. So you're going to find a lot of good tea and a lot of places to enjoy tea. Whether you do the full ceremony or just grab a quick cup of tea. Yeah, there are a ton of tea houses in Kyoto that you can seek out. By the way, if you are interested in learning more about matcha and other types of Japanese tea, check out episode 33. We talked all about Japanese tea. Yes. Uh, You can also find a ton of treats in Kyoto that are flavored with matcha. For example, matcha ice cream is all over the place. Yeah, if you're not going to go to Uji, Kyoto might be the next best place to get all your matcha treats. Yeah, Uji is famous for green tea. If you're really into tea, that's definitely a good place to visit, just south of Kyoto. Yeah, easy day trip or half day trip. Yep. But in Kyoto, I also found some matcha cake. Cake. I had, I mean, the matcha lattes are available at cafes all over the place. Matcha candy. If you're a fan of matcha, you will find all sorts of stuff. Any other foods to look out for, Paul? If you're into kaiseki, which is like traditional, multi-course, fancy Japanese cuisine, uh, there's a bunch of very high-quality restaurants in Kyoto. Absolutely. be a little pricey, but it's going to be like top-line food. Yeah. Uh, We mentioned this a little bit in the last episode. This is a, a style of meal that originated with the tea ceremony, actually. And uh, yeah, I would highly recommend checking out a Kaiseki restaurant if you've never had that style of meal before. It's pretty, it feels classy. I don't know, just having a bunch of courses brought out to you. It's pretty I nice. like courses. Yeah. Yeah, makes me feel like a king. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Give any more food or maybe we need a beverage now? I think you're right. I think we need to talk about sake yeah. a little bit. So the Kyoto area is known for being one of the best places in Japan for sake, specifically the Fushimi Sake District. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are several breweries around that you can visit. Maybe you could get a tour, maybe sample some sake. Yeah, there's over 30 breweries in the district. Some of them have uh, rooms where you can taste it. Some of them have museums and guided tours. There's, There's a lot you can see. and taste and drink down there. Nice. So maybe go take a sake brewery tour, taste some sake, and then if you want to continue drinking after that, I saw that they actually have bar hopping tours around Kyoto. Interesting. They will take you to like little hidden backstreet bars that you never would have found on your own, but they look really cool. Like just you get some of that authentic local experience that way, you know? Yeah, that's nice. Well, I think we've talked about enough things to keep everybody busy for a bunch of days. Probably. So let's maybe talk briefly about transportation, best ways to get around Kyoto. Starting off with the Shinkansen. Stops at Kyoto Station on the Tokaido line. So you can get there pretty easily from Tokyo or Osaka or any of the major cities that connect to the Shinkansen. 
Yeah, that's probably the easiest way to get to Kyoto. It only takes about two hours from Tokyo. Yeah, Kyoto doesn't have a major airport. So you can fly, You if you fly in, you're probably flying into Osaka. And then it's only like a 30-minute train ride. Or if that, if you take the Shinkansen, I think it's less. It's even than less, that. yeah, into Kyoto. So yeah. Uh, so once you're in Kyoto, I would say plan to do a lot of walking. Yeah. There's two subway lines and a bunch of trains, but there's so many things all over the place, and so many of the temples and other attractions being on the very outskirts of town. There's not always like a subway station right there. Yeah, the train network isn't nearly as extensive as the one in Tokyo. So you'll have to rely more on your feet, maybe buses or taxis, depending on what you want to see and how much walking you're okay with. Yeah. Also, just the way the city is, like there's a lot of tourists. There's a million and a half people that live in the city. The subway, I think, is geared to the most riders possible. So they're in the downtown and the business districts. And that makes more sense than going all the way out to some temple that a few hundred people are going to go see every day. Yeah. Uh, another option that I haven't personally used, but sounds pretty cool, is you could rent a bike. Yeah. There are places around the city, a bunch of places, that will let you rent a bike. And from what I saw, the prices were pretty reasonable, like around 10 bucks for an entire day. Yeah, I was blown away because the only places I've really rented bikes or downtown here, which was expensive, and in LA on the beach, which was really expensive. Mm. So I was like, oh, 10 bucks? Heck yeah. You could rent a bike all day? Yeah. We covered so much on foot. On bike? You could get if, all over the place. If you just take a train or a bus to kind of the area you want to be in, and then you rented a bike, oh man, you could see everything. Totally. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. And I saw that they even have maps that will show you all of the bike parking areas around the city. So you don't have to worry about like, where am I going to leave this bike while I'm walking around this temple? You do want to find a parking area for your bike. Yeah. It's unlikely to get stolen, but it might get impounded if you just leave it on a street somewhere. Yeah. Um, They also, the maps also show where bikes aren't allowed. There are some places where you don't want to be biking. So, you know, just having that map with you kind of takes out a lot of the potential stress. Yeah. And almost every temple and tourist attraction, they'll have a little area for bike parking. So you could just kind of roll up to all these places and just so many people bike. There's bike parking all over the place. Yeah. And if you're going long distances, you can even get electric bikes to help you out and make it easier. I rode my first one, not like a few weeks ago in LA. Really? Your first electric bike? Yeah. And it was so easy. I felt like I was barely pedaling and I was just flying. Awesome. It was great. Very cool. Welp, that's the end of episode 100. And as I said, this is probably going to be our last episode, at least until Japan opens up to tourism again. And when that happens, we will let you know. There will be an episode coming out just to let you know. Good news, everybody. You can go back to Japan now. Um, But for now, I just want to give a sincere thank you to everyone that has joined us on this journey. All the wonderful people that have reached out to us on Instagram or sent us emails or donated or commented on the website or gave us a review or just listened to us ramble on about Japan. We've spent, it must have been like almost 100 hours now 
Yeah. I feel like over time, our episodes have gotten longer and longer, but it probably averages out to about an hour an episode, I would guess. Yeah, I think they definitely got longer, kind of right when we went to the every other week mm-hmm. versus the every week. Yeah. Well, I personally have had a ton of fun making this podcast, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely thank you to everyone that's interacted with us. You know, the reviews, the comments, the messages, whatever. Like, that's really fun. Yeah, that's the best part of this whole thing. We love hearing from you guys. So thank you. Uh, And if you would like to reach out to us, even still, we will be reachable via the website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. You could reach us on Instagram, where we are at sjppodcast. You could send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. We're still around, even if we're not putting out episodes regularly. Yeah, we're still around. We're still reading about Japan. We're watching and we're waiting. Yeah, uh, it's an indefinite hiatus, so we'll really know what's going to happen, but definitely hoping to post some more content in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm going to lose it. Hmm? I won't go to Japan so bad, bro. Ah. <laughs> I'm Jonesin, bro. (laughs) Me too, man. Me too.